Hebrews chapter 8. Three questions I will start with for you as we start here in the Hebrews chapter 8. The first is, who do you follow? During your day of life, Monday through Saturday, who do you follow? Sunday, I, I, I gather your answer will be like, uh, like the, the five-year-old in the class next door. Jesus, who do you follow? Jesus. Sunday seems like you always, seems everyone has the right answer. But the question is, is, who do you follow Monday through Saturday? Who do you go to when in times of difficulties and trials and doubts and questions and big decisions that need to be made? Who do you go to first? And the third question I will plant in your mind this morning is, who is your God? Who is truly your God? Who is it or what is it or what organization or what... Who do you follow and who do you declare as God? Yes, I know, I know, I know. If you ask you directly, you know the answer. Jesus, <laughs> Jesus, you know. But the question is, where do you spend your time, your energy, your money, your resources, what you spend energy on thinking through each day, Monday through Saturday is what I want you to know, is who is your God? Because what, you're, what you say on Sunday may not line up on Monday through Saturday. It should. It must. You should be consistently the same on Monday as you are on Sunday, regardless if you're at church or if you're at work and these things. These things I want you to plant, because these are the challenge that these believers were having there as the writer writes to these Hebrew believers. They were being challenged because they came to Jesus. They now know who Jesus is. They're his Savior. They know they have to put their faith and trust in him for salvation, for eternal life. But then there was doubts. Then people started bringing false teaching and bringing back in. The Judaizers started showing back up. People started saying, isn't it better just to go back to the old life? Now for some... The old life is worldliness, going back to the, what the world says and dictates to you. But for them, the challenge was going back to Judaism, back to religiosity. A system, a religious system is what they were being pulled back into. And that's what we see here. And I love the fact that the writer of Hebrews gives us a summary here in chapter 8 of the last seven chapters, especially last chapter, chapter 7. So follow along with me here. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 and 2 here says, Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. I love that. It's pretty clear. This is the main point. So if you haven't followed along, if you just jumped into the letter in this middle of this epistle here, right here, you would sit there, what was the main point? Main point of what? You'd have to start the beginning of, of Hebrews and look at the first seven chapters or the first part of the letter so you understand what he is about to summarize for you and I today. So now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Verse 2. 
a minister. Notice in your Bible it should be a capital M. A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. So the writer of Hebrews brings together the main point of the previous seven chapters, especially chapter 7. And we says here we have a high priest. Who is the high priest that we talked about over the last seven chapters, especially last week, a couple of weeks in chapter 7? Jesus Christ is our high priest. We know he's the perfect high priest who ministers to us from a position here, as we see as the writer says, from a position of authority. A position of authority in heaven, we see here, the writer says, seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty, right on the right side of, of, of the heavenly Father. Now remember the fact that Jesus Christ is morally perfect. And yet identified with you and I while he was on this earth in all of our needs and all the temptations. Make him superior as the high priest past and present. And those readers, the ones who are reading this letter right now that we're reading. Who wanted to go back to the old Testament or the Old Covenant, the Old Testament priesthood, would have to leave this perfect high priest that the writer had just been talking about. Do you understand? If you want to go back to the religious ways that you came out of, back to the law, back to all the do's and don'ts and checklists and make sure you have to follow up perfectly every day, if not, you're failed. If you're going to go back to that, you're leaving the high, most perfect high priest that we just talked about. That Jesus Christ was not enough for you. That somehow something that man has created or followed a religious system is somehow going to be better than just following Jesus Christ, our high, perfect high priest. That's crazy. When you presented it that way, you're, you're going, no, of course, I wouldn't leave Jesus to go back to a religious system and religious ways and, and the, the fun things that they do. No, no one would ever do that, would you? Happens all the time. Because they find it's hard for you to live by faith in the, that you have in the perfect high priest of Jesus Christ. Somehow you feel like you have to do something to make you feel like you're being religious. And this is what the writer says saying. You can't just do things to make yourself religious. It doesn't work that way. It wasn't perfect. It didn't meet the needs. It didn't fulfill. It wasn't. And this is what the writer is going to summarize here for us. Who You must follow the perfect high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne. So additionally here, we see that Jesus is seated in heaven. That's important to understand that. Our Savior, the perfect high priest, is in heaven. He's not like the continuous priesthood is on this earth constantly under the law of Moses doing, doing, doing the things that need to be done. The tabernacle and the temple of the old covenant had these beautiful furnishings. If you've been following along on Wednesday nights when we went through Leviticus and now in our favorite book called Numbers or your favorite book, 
you'll find that they had a beautiful, beautiful building and beautiful lavish and gold. I mean, it was exquisite. It was just an architectural, incredible dream that you're looking at. But no place in that tabernacle that we studied in there while they're going across the promised land, across the desert into the promised land, nowhere in any of the furnishings and the design of that, if you're following along with us, there was no place for them to sit. You know why? Because that priesthood under the old covenant could never rest in God's presence in that tabernacle. Work, 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 work. They constantly could not sit down because their work was never finished. Each repeated sacrifice that they had to make, not only for themselves, but also for God's people, had to be repeated, that sacrifice, over and over and over. And it was always a reminder that it never provided a finished salvation for the people. It was temporary. The old, the, the blood of the, of the animals did not wash away sin or cleanse the guilty conscience of the people. It only covered until that day when Jesus died on the cross and his blood was shed for the sin of the world. We see that in John chapter 1 verse 29. The work of Jesus is finished on the cross. And now he sits where? He's seated in the heavens. It's complete. It's finished. There's no additional work, 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 work that has to be done. It's not temporary. It is what? Finished. It's complete. It reminds us in Psalm 110, verse 1. When we see here is the fulfillment of the Father's promise to the Son. If you know it, I'll, I'll read it for you. You will sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. That's the fulfillment of a promise that the Father said to the Son this would happen. And now we see he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. And not only that, you're going to be a minister, in verse 2, a minister of the sanctuary, of the true tabernacle. Jesus doesn't serve as a priest in an earthly tabernacle or temple. He serves in the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected. Remember, the original, made by God, gave a, a blueprint to Moses for him to build the tabernacle, which was just a copy, as we will see, just a, a shadow of what we will see, of what the original looks like in heaven. We see that given to Moses in Exodus chapter 25, verses 8 and 9, if you'd like to go back and read that. But the original is in heaven, created, designed, and built by God, not by man. 
he then graciously shows his people and for all of us a picture of what it's going to be like, how magnificent it will be. But he gives a copy to Moses and says, this I need you to build. When did he give it to him? On Mount Sinai. Some people think he went up and just got the Ten, ten Commandments, the two tablets. No, he was up there for quite some time. He had to get all the blueprints of how to build the tabernacle and all the furnishings that would go with it. Then we see in verse 3, For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one, capital O in your Bible, this one, speaking of Jesus, also has something to offer. Every high priest had a really a function of what his job was. He had to show up and receive the gifts from the people and the sacrifices and do the sacrifices for the covering of their sins. To, bring, to represent the people in front of God. And that's what the responsibility of every high priest. The sacrifice for sin is essential to the concept of priesthood. Here the writer says Jesus has represented a superior priesthood and offered a superior sacrifice. What was that sacrifice? The sacrifice was him and himself on the cross. It was his blood. He is the one, it was his own life of the atonement or atone or payment for the sin of the world. The perfect sacrifice by the perfect priesthood of Jesus, Jesus Christ. That's what the writer is saying here, is that when you start thinking about going back to some inferior method or inferior ways, and you take your eyes off of fully of who Jesus Christ is and put it back onto man or put it onto some religious system or some religious ways, you are not going in the right direction. You're not going in the right direction. If you've never given your life to Jesus Christ and started a relationship with Jesus Christ, you think just going to a church somehow saves you. You're not going in the right direction. You're not. I know, trust me, my brothers and sisters, I know it is a challenge for many to get out of a routine that you've been going and doing for so many years in a religious way. I've heard the stories for years. 25 years in the ministry, I've listened and watched. People struggle and struggle and struggle and seem not to grow in their relationship and understanding of who Jesus Christ is. Because a system restricts you. The old ways restrict you. You're not growing in your knowledge and understanding. You have no desire to read the word. You've allowed a system To be that fulfillment. It's about a relationship with Jesus. That high perfect priest. Who gave you and I the perfect sacrifice. His own life for yours. There is no one else to follow but him. The writer is really straightforward here. 
Jesus never offered a sacrifice according to the law of Moses. He did offer a better sacrifice. He is the living sacrifice in heaven. The living sacrifice. Now the writer continues, not only who is the perfect high priest that we follow, not only is he offered the perfect sacrifice, but we see here in verses 4 and 5, it's in a better place or a perfect place. Look, notice this. For he... For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. Verse 5. Who served the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. So here the writer continues and says Jesus is not qualified to even serve on the earth at the tabernacle. Why? First of all, he didn't qualify because he didn't come from the tribe of Levi. He came from the tribe of Judah. He wasn't under the order of Aaron. He was under under the order of Melchizedek. A higher order. So he wouldn't even qualify to even go down and go into something that is a copy or a shadow of heavenly things. He is the heavenly things. I mean, there was plenty of priests who qualified under the Aaron lineage to be able to go in and do all these sacrifices. There was plenty of priests. But there is only one high priest who could fulfill the perfect plan. The redemptive plan. Only one. And that is Jesus. Jesus is the only one qualified to serve the superior heavenly priesthood that is required. The earthly service, though it was glorious, though it was amazing to the eyes of man when you look at it, it was only a copy an inferior copy and shadow of the superior heavenly place that you and I will dwell in one day. We see that, again, Moses was given this this blueprint in Exodus 25, verse 40, when he says to them, you must follow this pattern which I will show you, Moses. We're going to take the time and go through it all. I need you to make sure you do it. You're going to copy and provide a good copy of what a picture points you to heavenly things. And that heavenly temple that served as a pattern for the earthly tabernacle and temple, John stated that the temple of God is in heaven. We see that in Revelation chapter 11 verse 19. But Jesus' ministry, as our perfect high priest, takes place in the heavenly temple. And we cannot lose sight of that. Many times people will sit there and look for something that's tangible that they want to hold on to. So somehow they feel achievement or they have a partake of it or they're able to to get their grip on this. But we live by faith and not by sight. 
And so many today, even in, in Israel, many of the Jewish priests and others are looking to rebuild the temple because they need to have this built. Why? Because they haven't been able to do it. The first century Jews took tremendous pride in the temple. It was a a great architectural achievement. But if you understand the history and you really think that through, why do they love it so? Because it's something that they tangible can have. And they end up worshiping the temple, the building, and not God himself. How many people won't leave a church that's teaching false doctrine, but they love the building so much they can't leave the building? So we talk about them like, oh, they're not going to leave the temple, you know. We talk about them like they're doing something. It happens still today. The church is you, not the building. We don't worship a building. We worship Jesus Christ. But back in the first century Jews, they loved, it was an incredible architectural achievement. It was glorious in, the, in, the, in Jerusalem, the temple sitting right there on the mount. But also understand, most of the, that temple that was built was built by Herod the Great, the, the Great. And he was a corrupt and ungodly man. He just wanted his own, his own name on it. If he could have gotten his name plastered, Herod the Greater crossed it, he would have. Again, no difference today. Many people will say, I'm doing this for God, but they want their name all over it. We don't take the glory away from the Lord. We give him all the praise and honor for it. But even that temple that's set in Jerusalem on the top and in grand it is, is a copy, a minuscule compared to the heavenly temple, the original. How glorious it will be when we see face to face. Verse 6, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also Mediator, notice in your Bible it's a capital M, reflecting the deity. Mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. So we sit here and we sit and look at no earthly priest could take away sin the way Jesus did. No one. Therefore, Jesus' ministry is far better than any ministry of the priesthood of that day or today. Even though they're following the law of Moses, maybe to even a T, does not compare to what Jesus has done for you and me. He's the mediator of a better covenant, the writer says here. Jesus has mediated for for us a better covenant. What is that covenant? It's a covenant of grace and not of works. That's the new covenant. It's guaranteeing for us a co-signer that we talked about last week in chapter 7, verse 22. He is our co-signer. He's guaranteeing for all parties completely he takes responsibility of that purchase. 
What is that purchase? Your life and my life. He gives us the assurance. It's a better covenant marked by believing and receiving from God instead of by earning and deserving. How many people in the religious world constantly looking to earning some gold stars on the refrigerator of what they've accomplished for God? And then turn around after they've done it, and I deserve God's blessing. I deserve to get whatever I ask from God. You don't get it. You don't understand it. Keep showing up, because eventually the Spirit of God is going to teach you today and days to come about understanding God's grace, because we deserve nothing. It's believing in him and what he has done and receiving what God, by God's grace what he wants to give to us. Jesus is our mediator for this better covenant. He's a mediator who is one who stands in the middle between two people and brings them together. That's what a mediator is. Moses was the mediator. He brought the old, in under the old covenant, he brought the two parties together. He represented. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. A better covenant bringing us to God the Father, making a way for us to boldly come into the throne of God. And Jesus' covenant is a better covenant, better than any of the previous covenants that God made with men that we see in the scriptures. What are those? Well, the first one is the everlasting eternal covenant we see in, in referenced in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20, between the members of the Godhead that made possible the salvation of man. The second covenant is the Noahic covenant. We see in Genesis chapter 6, verse 18, when God's redemptive plan was ultimately encompassing all of creation. The third covenant is the Abrahamic covenant. We see in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, where God's redemptive plan was continued through the covenant he made with Abraham. Then there was the Mosaic covenant. That was with Moses. Another step in God's redemptive plan we saw in Exodus chapter 24 verses 3 through 8. Then we had the divinic covenant. The agreement with David, King David if you remember. We see that in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And it was yet another step in God's redemptive plan of God's assurance of he's going to follow through with the plan that he has called the redemptive plan. And now we see the last and final covenant, the new covenant. It's the redemptive plan that God fulfilled. We see that noted back in Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 20, when Jesus was raised from the dead. The new covenant was fulfilled. The last covenant. The perfect covenant. It's complete. It's finished, my brothers and sisters. 
And so we see through this, as the writer talks about there, with that comes promises. The better promises. What are those that Jesus has for us that are better promises? Well, first, there are promises to see us through the most desperate and dark trials and times of our life. He will never leave you or forsake you. How many people have we been ministering to over the years here and we still see the challenges that we see in our world today? People are coming unglued. They're becoming very unstable emotionally because of the pressures and the things that are happening in their lives. But we have the answer, do we not? That's why we go out and share with love The perfect high priest, Jesus Christ, who they will follow, who will never leave them or forsake them through the most difficult and dark times of their life. If they will turn and follow him. What a tremendous promise we can give to people who have no hope. We can give them hope in a person who is alive. Who has all authority sitting in the heavenly places. Not government. We also see that these are promises that become alive to us through the Spirit of God. God sent a helper, the Holy Spirit, to minister to our hearts. He doesn't lay this to us to figure out. He has the Holy Spirit moving in and through our lives to teach us and encourage us and strengthen us through these difficult times. God himself, the Holy Spirit. And he also, we see the promises of blessing and undeserved favor instead of promises of cursing. God is not going to curse his people, his children. He's going to bless them, and and undeservingly so. That's what we mean by grace. He's going to give you things that you absolutely we do not deserve. He shows us mercy every day. His mercies are new every day for his children. These are the promises that we have in our relationship with Jesus. No earthly priesthood can do that. No system, a religious system can do that. No governmental system is going to do that. Not even your loving grandmother can do that. As much as she wants to. Once we get that in our mind and settled in our hearts that Jesus is the only way, That he provides us the the much better promises. The perfect promises for us. How much it should settle your hearts. That's why as the writer continues in verse 7. For if that first covenant had been uh, faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. So the writer reminds them. Hey, the reason I'm talking about this new covenant and who Jesus Christ is and the better place and the better sacrifice and all this is because the first one did not work. It had faults all over the place. Why would you go back to that? Remember, the writer's writing to believers who are thinking about going back to the religious system of Judaism, going back to some things that they feel like tangibly they can do. 
Why would you go back to it? It, was, it had faults all over the place. So the fact that God mentions another covenant proves that there is something lacking in the old covenant. The law is not perfect. It will not meet your needs. It was not settled. It's not going to be complete and finished for you. It will be always in question for you. That's why he continues in verse 8. Because finding fault with them. God found fault with them. The system there. The old covenant. He says, behold, the days are coming. It had not happened yet. Remember, as the writers writing this, they do not have the New Testament. They do not have the book of Hebrews. They don't have any of that. All they have is they're currently right now, there is a temple, there is a tabernacle, there's sacrifices going on, there is a priesthood system that are still cranking out all those sacrifices. This is what they're looking at. So the writer says, behold, the days are coming. It's not there yet. The new covenant has not been fulfilled yet. Just know, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will, notice here, I will make a new covenant. The old system was, if you do this, if you do this, if you do this, if you do this, what were some of the results if you didn't do it the old covenant way? You could die. But here we see the change. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Verse 9, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers, the old covenant, right? In the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Why did he have to change? Gives us a reason right here. Because they did not continue in my covenant. And I disregarded them, says the Lord. Verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his brother, says, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. In verse 12, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Woo! I hope you wake up now. So if you're following with me, this is a heavy conversation right here. And I'm going to bring you through all those verses. But this is very, very critical for you to wake up and listen to this right now. Because in the days of Jeremiah, because this is what he's reading here. He's referring us back to Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. But go back to Jeremiah 31 and read that today. Get your good... good Get your coffee, get your, your, your hot tea, and cozy up there and buy your little sun, get your vitamin D coming in. But you just sit right there and read through this because the Jeremiah, the new covenant, was still in the future. It hadn't happened yet, as we know. And he writes here, behold, the days are coming of this new covenant. But he's in the context of Jeremiah when you read that. The context, if you remember, that Jeremiah's prophecy was referring to the Jos uh, Josiah's renewal of the covenant 
after finding the law once again. If you remember, it lost, they lost the law, got the law back. We see that in 2 Kings 23, verse 3. Hold with me. For those who are students and taking notes, you've got to go back to that because remember, you understand Josiah is there. He found the law. They're reintroducing the law to the people, trying to get things going again. But that's not the law he's referring to. He says, even with this renewal that we found the old covenant, the law to go back into things, this renewal was good, but it wasn't enough because Jeremiah looks toward a new covenant that the old covenant was pointing everyone to. And it says, I will make. The Lord makes it clear that this covenant originates with God and not with man. At Mount Sinai, under the old covenant, the key words were, if you do the following. Here, he's saying under the new covenant, the key words is, I will do this. What is this? Well, it means a new covenant. The word in the ancient Greek here of new is not something that's been renovated. Do it yourself. D-U-I, D-Y, D-I-Y, what do you do it yourself? Whatever. Yeah, D-I-Y. It's not a D-I-Y moment here. God says, I'm going to take something brand new and develop it myself and give it to you. You can't do it. You can't make it. You can't participate. You are just to follow me. So it's new. It's a new, it's not a reproduction of something. It is completely new. And so people sit there and try to do the quasi, mix the two together. That's what these believers were trying to do. I want Jesus as my Savior, but I still want to do the religious ways. And can I do a happy medium? Can I create my own little religious experience and my own create my own religion and create my own way and relationship, how I'm going to relate to God the Father? That happens all the time today in religion. You want the things of the world. You want to do the things of the flesh. But you still want to be, have that assurance that you are saved and going to heaven. And so you sit there and create your own thing. How you're going to worship God. You do it your own way. What you do and what you don't do with God. You decide what you will or will not do. When you want to do it. How you want to do it. Where you want to do it. You and I think we can just make those decisions on our own even though we want a master, a Lord, a Savior for our eternal life. And then tell our master he doesn't have a say what we will or will not do. Isn't that the most foolish thing when you hear it? Hello? But how many times have we done it? Corey, I need you to do this. Ah, I don't feel like it. When did you have a choice? It's like kids and parenting today. Go clean your room. I don't feel like it. Oh, okay. Johnny must be tired. When did the kid, when did the kid have a say in this? When was obedience to what the father says are you supposed to do? And you wonder why. There's chaos, even in the church today. The new covenant, 
was not like the old covenant. As the writer says, as God made with the fathers in ancient Israel. There was a weakness within the old covenant. And it's not so much in the covenant itself because it was divinely given to Moses to give to the people. It was the people who had the weakness and the inability of man to follow through and be obedient to what God's called them to do. It didn't take long after getting that, the law that they were disobedient and not following what God asked them to do. And that's why the writer says here, because they did not continue in my covenant. They cannot continue to do what God told them they needed to do, commandments to do what they needed to do. And verses 10 through 12, I hope you noticed there were four better promises that were outlined in the scripture here for us. Let me give them to you for those who are taking notes. The first one is, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. That is a very important verse right there for you and I. Why? Because the new covenant marks a transformation within a person when they give their life to Jesus. A transformation takes place. A change takes place in your life. It's not maybe it will take place. If you are born again, it will take place. What takes place here, he says, is that you no longer under regulations that are given to you. You're not given some external law to give it to you. The writer in the scripture here, by, and by, given by the Holy Spirit, the words, says that I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. It's an inner inclination to obey God. Did you know that? The old covenant came in with such awe and terror, it should have converted someone to be, out of, be obedient out of fear. Oh, I'm going to get a whipping. I'm going to get, there's a fear. Right? But what happens is they sat there and we realize they may not get a whipping. They overcome the fear and they become disobedient and do whatever they want to do. But they sinned against the old covenant almost immediately and the new covenant works very differently. The new covenant works obedience through the law that is written in their mind and on their hearts. So God says, I'm going to do something new. I'm going to write my will in your heart. Get, follow with me here. I'm going to put my thoughts in your mind. I'm going to put my spirit in your spirit. This is what the scriptures tells us so. And when you realize that it's no longer, where's the checklist I need to follow in my, to, to make sure I'm doing my religious thing? I'm no longer going to sit there and what's the regulation, what's the rules, what's the policies that I need to follow? God says he is going to put it in, your, in you, in your mind, in your hearts, his will and what he wants you to do. That's what happens. It's different. People say, you know, someone will come in here and I'll say, oh, it's so good to see you. Yeah, I've been gone a long time. But why didn't someone come get me? It's not my job to come get you. 
Why? Because as a believer, God is inside you giving the thoughts and motivations and all the do's and don'ts of what needs to happen to be obedient to him. He's the one who's doing it. The Holy Spirit is the one speaking to you. The question is, are you going to be obedient? That's the question. The second one is, is I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's a relationship. The new covenant marks a greater intimacy with God. How many non-believers tell you, you really talk to God? And he really talks to you? Yes, he does. How does he do that? He speaks into my mind. He leads my steps, my path. He guides my steps. He closes doors. He opens doors. We have all kinds of terms we use as Christians to describe this inner working of the Holy Spirit working inside us to tell us what we need to do to be in His will. He also gives red flags. Don't go there. Don't say that. You're not to partake of that anymore. It's called conviction. The question is, is, are you going to grieve the Holy Spirit or are you going to be obedient to the Spirit of God? Are you going to listen to Dad or are you going to ignore Dad? And so when we sit here and know this, he says it's a more intimacy with God than when was available under the Old Covenant. We have a firm relationship with God. That is the better promise that you and I have as a child of God. Not only do we have this inner inclination to obey God, but we have this close intimacy relationship with God. You didn't have it under the religious system. You didn't have it under the old covenant. You didn't have it under the old priesthood system. Notice the third. And they all shall know me. What's the word there? All? What does that mean? In the ancient Greek? In the Hebrew? All means all. All shall know me. That means the knowledge of God will be given to all of us. How am I going to understand and know this thing, this Bible? It's just... Because the Spirit of God is going to teach you all things you need to know as you grow and mature in your relationship with God. You don't have to fear this. Just keep listening. Keep reading. Keep showing up. Keep asking questions of God. What does this mean? And He is going to give you the knowledge that you need to know for that time of your life. The fourth one, their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now that one is quoted a lot from people. Oh, I'm so thankful that God will not remember all my past sins. Let me bring you some clarity of what this means. The new covenant offers a true, complete cleansing. From all your sin. Fact. Absolute fact. It's not like the old covenant where it's just a covering from the sacrifice of the animal. 
but an absolute, complete washing away of your sin to be as white as snow. So we see the fourth promise, and that is the forgiveness of sins. The provision, the way of forgiving of all your sins. That is the promise of devoting and trusting by faith in Jesus Christ as your high priest. Now let me give you some thoughts here. Our all-knowing God, a key doctrine you need to know, God knows all things, does not forget anything. He knows absolutely every thought and intentions of your heart that never goes away. The phrase the writer here says, remember no more. What does that mean? It means that it will no longer ever be held or hold against us no more. All of our sin will not be held against us no more. That's what it means to remember no more. God recalls what we have done, but he does not hold it against us. Why is that important? Because you understand that our God deals with us on the basis of grace and mercy. Grace and mercy. Not law And worthiness. Because we're not worthy. It's only by God's grace and mercy. Now once sin has been forgiven. Once sin has been forgiven in your life. It is never brought before us again. The matter is settled eternally. Application. Because we are to be like our God, to be like our Savior, to be Christ-like, we too must be, as we follow Him, we must learn to forgive and forget. What does that mean? We must learn as people do wrong things against us. You're never going to forget it. Lord willing, it will fade away. It will not dominate your mind any longer. But these computers have a way of recalling things from years past of what people have done to you. The key thing now is, will you remember no more? Meaning, will you no longer look at that person or think of that person and say, they did this to me. You've got to move in the same direction where you say, I don't even remember. I, I remember, but I'm no longer going to hold that against him like they've never done it to me. But that was horrifying, Pastor. That person, I molested me. You'll never forget it, but you must move on like it never happened from that person. You give it to the Lord in all of these things. Why? Because if you don't, it will eat you alive and it will cause such challenges mentally, spiritually, and physically. You must learn by the power of the Holy Spirit to forgive and not let that grip you 
any longer, whatever horrifying thing happened. You must just keep your eyes on Jesus and move on. Let the past be the past and let the Spirit of God work that in and through. Will it take time? Absolutely. Will it be hard? Absolutely. But can God give you a peace and comfort that surpasses your own understanding of that situation? Absolutely. Another key point I want to mention here from verse 11 is that the new covenant says you already know what you should be doing because the Lord wrote his will on your heart. We don't need anyone to put rules or regulations or checklists because the Lord lives in us. And that's the great thing about Christianity. When you are walking with the Lord, when you're abiding with the Lord, when you are living in the new covenant, you don't have regulations, you don't have stipulations, you don't have obligations, you don't have checklists. You have those, those, those things are just the law. It's legalism. It's just the law if you are looking for those or people demand those upon you. Instead, you and I just do what the Lord is writing on your heart. How does he do that? He's telling you in your mind. He's whispering in your ear moment by moment. And all you have to do is say, okay, Lord... What do you have for me today? What do you want me to do next, Lord? And that's what it means to be a born-again, new covenant, spirit-led Christian. For whatever God wants from you, by His grace, He will work within you. Philippians chapter three, or chapter two, verse thirteen. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do His good pleasure. You've heard me say this so many times if you've been with me. Lord, does this please you? Lord, is this what you're telling me to do? Is this please you? This is what I think. Seems to be moving forward and doors opening. Does this please you? And take the time and listen. Because if it doesn't, if you haven't heard anything, don't make a move. Well, how do I know, Pastor? If it, you must spend time, quiet time with your Lord and be in the Word. Because He will speak to you through the Word of God and confirm what He's whispering in your ear. He will confirm what He's asking you to do. And it will require faith to do it, if it doesn't take faith, it's not of God. And you must learn to know his voice. And that means you spend time with him in prayer. A lot of prayer. Talking to him all the time. And also listening. That is so important. You must mature and develop in your Christian walk. Remember, our brothers and sisters in the first century church were the most radical Christians in all of history. The most radical. They did not have the new written New Testament to follow. 
They did not understand the reality of the new covenant yet. They obeyed what God was writing in their hearts, speaking to them to do. And as a result, they turned the world upside down, we see written in Acts chapter 17, verse 6. They didn't sit there and say, well, can't we analyze in the Greek and the Latin and the Hebrew on the, all the doctrines of this and this and that and Romans and let's cut that all up. And he, they didn't have any of that. None of it. They just were obedient to the Spirit of God listening or speaking to their hearts about doing the work of God. It never was for them. It was always for Him. And they had a simple message. And it's the same message we have here. What is that message? Reach the lost with the gospel and disciple people up in the, in the faith. That's all they did then? That's all we do here. That's why you don't see programs. You don't see gimmicks and marketing, marketing techniques. We want to reach the loss with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and then encourage each one of us and equip you in the word of God. Why? Because the word of God doesn't replace the Spirit of God. The Word of God is used to simply nudge you and I as a believer along in our walk. As we read the Word of God, it nudges us to go do what God's been whispering in your ear. Go do these things. Walk and confirms and still that still small voice of the Spirit of the Lord in your heart. Let the word of God be confirmation to what the Spirit of God is saying to you. That's why it's so important, my brothers and sisters. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit because you will not hear his still small voice. How do you grieve the Holy Spirit? By continuing in sin is one way. And not being obedient to what he's already told you to do. If he told you to take a step, but you didn't want to go left, you wanted to go right, he's not going to say anything else to you until you're obedient and take the left first. It's that simple. And finally, verse 13. We're going to see the significance of the new covenant here. He says, in that he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So the writer here to these people, I know you're looking to go back to the old covenant. You're willing to go back to the old priesthood system. You're looking to go back to the law and follow these do's and don'ts and regulations. And checklists of religiosity. But understand this. If you go back there, it's about to vanish. It hasn't vanished yet. I know you can hear the <laughs> being slaughtered over there. I know you can hear it. You can see the blood running down into the valley. I know you can smell it and hear it. And you think that is the... You should go back to what the rest of the people are doing. The majority of people are doing this. The majority of people think this. Even this, even in the religious today, many religions are moving in a direction that is going contrary to the word of God. But the majority of them are moving in that direction. And it's a temptation for you, not for you, of course not for you. 
because you understand the scripture. But for the others who have not been in the word, there's a temptation to follow the rest of the religious system that is turning to a worldly way. It's vanishing away, they said. That old covenant is about to disappear on you. Why would you go back to it? How do we know this? Because we know in A.D. 70, the city of Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed by the Romans. And that was the last time the Jews ever were able to step into a temple or tabernacle and sacrifice for their sins. They have not had anything since. Can you imagine if you're a Jew and the priest is the only one who can go in and represent you and have a sacrifice to be for you, to cover your sin, to have to be able to have a, not to have an angry God come down upon you because of the sin, and they haven't had any of that since A.D. 70? Think of the unrest in the Jewish nation. But they can come to Jesus, the Messiah that they've been talking and reading about, just like you and I. They can come to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Not go back to the inferior covenant, the old covenant. It's about to vanish away. And again, that's the Holy Spirit talking to a writer of the book of Hebrews that has not happened yet. And it happened shortly after that in 70 AD. Final thought here. You know, as a pastor, I say that five times before we actually finish, but our Lord is ministering on the basis of a better covenant, a new covenant that makes us partakers of a new nature and of the wonderful new life that Christ can give us if you will surrender your life to him. You can have this new life. You can have this new relationship. You can have a new nature. A change within the inner man, the inner woman can change if you will surrender your life by faith to Jesus Christ as your perfect high priest. He's the mediator. He's the minister. He's your all in all and no one else. He is truly the better covenant.